The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Everybody, my name is John Addis. I'm the founder of Intelligent Investor, and I have with me here this morning Gaurav Sodi. How you doing, Gaurav? Hi, John. How you doing? I'm very well, thanks. You're here, or we are here, to talk about the first of our top ten businesses. Just uh, for members' benefit, I'll just talk about why we're covering these companies. Mm. This is about 10 best growth businesses. Uh, It has nothing to do with price. So many of the companies we'll discuss uh, aren't on the buy list at the moment, but the point of this series is to alert members to um, the quality of these businesses so that if the opportunity does arise, um, we'll be prepared for it. What's interesting and timely about this series now is that there's every chance that we will get, I think, opportunities to buy at least some of these businesses um, over the next few months, maybe next 12 months or so. So it's a good time to get going. Um, our first company is uh, a jeweler called Lavisa. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask Gaurav a question. Uh, when you're when it's Friday night, Gaurav, and you're thinking about going to one of those bars in Sydney's Inner East. Oh, how well you know me, John. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and you've, uh, you've taken your wife's favourite dress out of the cupboard and you've you've put the uh, pantyhose on and it's feeling nice and tight around your thighs and you get to the accessorizing um personally i always like to do the jewelry at the end uh because the bags are just so complicated so my question to you is when you're accessorizing are you a livisa or a past paley man John, you, you don't accessorize at the end. You've got this all wrong. The really? accessory is part of the outfit. Um, often, actually, you'll have an accessory that you want to build an outfit around. I've learned all this stuff after covering La Visa for more than a year now. I originally thought the use case for La Visa was 13-year-old girls who mm-hmm. could only afford $10 pieces of jewellery. But I've since learned that the driver of La Visa isn't so much poverty or bad taste, although I'm sure both of those things have <laughs> their place. <laughs> the driver for La Visa is social media. And it's something that I don't think um, financial analysts understand very well. Um, and that's part of the opportunity here. I mean, we first came to La Visa purely by accident, I must admit. <clears throat> You'll, um, do you remember, John, that we had a development session with mm-hmm. our um, friend and mentor, Greg Hoffman, and we were doing retailers. We were learning about retailers and thinking about the best ways to value them and consider them. And uh, during that little uh, course, uh, La Visa popped up and all of us were just aghast at the numbers coming out of La Visa. And it just didn't look like a retailer, did it? It did not look like a retail. My first reaction was this thing is a fraud. Um, These numbers are too good. You have high margin and high turnover. Look, we'll break those things down in in a little bit. But it just looked too good to be true. And what I think we failed to appreciate was um, what really drives this business, who its customers are, what its advantages are. And Mm. um, I think that's true for us. And it's been true for a long time for most of the financial community, which is why I think LaVisa has been cheap for a long time. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning then. So you, you, you talk about the, the, tar- the target market. Um, let's look at that in a little bit more detail because the first time I stood outside a La Visa store, it was yep. teenage girls who were just yep. going in and out. Um, yep. But what I was astonished by was the, the turnover, the number of people going in and coming out reasonably quickly and, and, mm. and with, with bags of three or four 
things mm-hmm. in these bags. And the, the, just the sheer volume of product jammed into a very, very small space. How, how does that affect the economics of this business? Yeah, retail is wonderful that way. Look, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, John. Sometimes me and my wife on weekends when I'm not wearing her dresses, I will, we'll go into shopping centres and we will just watch retailers and try and understand those businesses. It's something that we <laughs> like doing together. Um, I'm starting to teach my little son how to do the same thing with a lot less success, I might add. But um, <laughs> when you do that with LaVisa, there's a few things that really come to mind. First of all, you've got a very small footprint. Um, and that automatically reduces your rent cost. You'll notice there's only one person at, usually one, at most there'll be two people working in that store. Mm. That also reduces the um, uh, the, num- the the wages bill. Yeah. So you've got your two biggest costs, which are rent and wages. Um, almost by design, uh, they're minimized um, because of the um, economic model. And then you've got um, everything is, is out. You know, it's not like um, a traditional jeweler where – Uh, You need um, a one-to-one staff-to-service ratio to take things out of their boxes, um, to unlock cabinets, to show items. Mm. Everything is available, so it's very much a self-service model, and that lends itself very well to high turnover. And you're right, the defining feature of LaVisa is its very quick inventory turn. So that this is something that they're quite clear on. Uh, If you go and read some of their presentations, and there's, there's one there from a Macquarie event, what was held last month, um, they talk about this fast fashion concept. So yep. the way to think about this then is maybe is like Zara for jewellery, yes. something like that. I think that's that's a key insight actually, John. And I think that was one of the things that, um, that really helped um, certainly me and I think the rest of the team really understand this business. It is a, it's not just a jewellery business or an accessories business, it's a fast fashion business. And let's um, think about what that does to the economics. It means, first of all, that um, the retail retail operation is fully integrated. So they do everything from design to sourcing, manufacturing, distribution, and retail. And when you do all of that in-house, um, A, you just end up capturing the margin at every stage, which is why LaVisa generates 80% gross margin, 25 to 30% net margin, which is unheard of. These are Apple-esque type margins. Um, So you get a a fantastic margin profile. But the other thing, and I think this is the real secret sauce to LaVisa, is that you get to capture a lot of data about what is selling in which geography, um, what works and what doesn't. And all that information um, feeds back into the design and sourcing loop um, immediately. So they're very, very quick at grasping trends and understanding what's selling and what's not selling, and they can switch their production and their sourcing quickly to respond to those trends. And that advantage is only deepened as the business grows. So the the more stores it opens, the more sales it generates, the better quality insight and data they get that better informs the kind of uh, jewelry that they're going to put out. And these Mm -hmm. guys will, will, from design to retail to to destination they can get um i think it's like a four-week turnaround something crazy quick like that mm. they release about uh, i think it's a hundred pieces a week um it's it's a the whole thing works because they're consistently um, using that feedback loop mm. and it's very hard to compete with once you have that yeah it also allows you to make quick decisions about where and when to open stores i mean i'm, I'm looking at their store growth over the years and in 
2020, they had seven stores in Vietnam and the next year they've just closed them all. Yep. And that's quite unusual to be able to make that decision so quickly to say this isn't going to work on seven stores. But when you've got that high turnover model, it gives you that data to be able to make those decisions more quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's really important. Um, with traditional retail, you, you end up um, experiment. your experiments take years to play out. You know, you, you don't know whether the concept is going to be a success in a geography for until a very long time, mm. but because as you say, they've got the, they get the data and the, and the turnover very quickly. They can make those decisions quickly, but it's also the willingness of management who run this as a kind of a, an owner mentality. Um, now the founders actually step back from the business, but the majority owner and financial backer is Brett Blundy. He owns, I think 40% of the business. And, um, you know, the mindset that he, that he brings to the business, I think it's still very much there. And that we, is we, maybe we should just, an owner's mindset. That's right. No, maybe you should talk about Brett Blundy because he has an enormous history in retailing. And I think if you're going to pick one person out of the Australian yep. business over the past 30, 40 years, who really has put their mark on Australian retailing it would be Brett Blundy. He, yep. he had Sanity, um, Bras CD store, bras and things. Uh, there was Gosh Coffee at one stage, which yep. closed down very quickly, I think. That was one of his ones that didn't work out. He's involved with um, his accent group who do the shoe right. retailing. Yeah. And I think um, Adairs, was he involved in Adairs at some point? I think he might have been, yes. Uh, what else has he done? There's a long history of him developing new retail concepts and mm. all the way through, I mean, since this, this company listed, um, he's been there and hasn't sold down and clearly is determined to roll this out as quickly as possible by the looks of it. So should we just talk about that expansion then? Because when you look at the store growth, they had 160 stores in, they had 50, 50 odd stores in 2012. They expanded that to 160. This is Australia and New Zealand. And 10 years later, there's, 153. So you can see how that growth has really plateaued over the last 10 years. So they're really relying on international expansion to make that work. So this is unusual in that this is an Australian retail concept that's been taken not just to the US, but to Europe, the Middle East, parts of Asia. How is that going? Look, they've had mixed results overseas. So the total store growth has actually... Um, been pretty successful, but but in inside that total aggregate growth, there have been geographies that have worked really really well, and geographies that have not worked. And they've opened closed and open stores and closed store closed stores. So they've been quite active in their store management. Um, recently, they opened up in a whole bunch of European locations because they made a very smart acquisition. That was amazing. Can, you, can was, you just discuss that? That yeah. was an incredible deal. So we woke up one morning to find that um, they had bought what was it like uh, 60, 60 stores, stores I think um, and they actually bought that for um, it was about a hundred bucks or something wasn't it John <laughs> yeah, like it was it was 50 euros. yeah it was about 50 euros yeah, well, and why didn't I buy it <laughs> <laughs> so what happened there was um, there was a European business called Beeline which I think is a clothing or accessories business and they had all these locations in various places and the management there did not want to or weren't allowed to. I'm not quite sure which way the um, the onus goes there, but for some reason they did not want to close the stores. They wanted to keep their employees and they wanted to maintain 
um, their leases. They didn't want to break those relationships. Well, I think there were certain kinds of rules in maybe it's France or Germany, I'm not sure, where you have to, in the event of a looming bankruptcy, you have to consult with staff about how to go about it and who's going to keep their job. So there's not just liabilities there in terms of the leases, there's also kind of cultural liabilities in terms of employees. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that would explain it because the opportunity was amazing. They actually um, just, they, they got those stores and I think they they, um, they they bought those locations for a discount to the working capital in the business. Um, so they, they, they in effect got paid to have these 60 stores, which they promptly turned over to La Visa stores and they're actually performing quite well now. And yeah. The important part of that is they just get instant access to new geographies and they get to try. This whole trial and error, quick turnover, quick experimentation that's driven the business, Hmm. that's now happening in six or seven countries in Europe right now. And it's a great opportunity to see which of those geographies will work. And it's a potential, um, you know, uh, for dozens of stores to be rolled out if those geographies are working. But John, the the big growth path for Levisa is not really in Europe; it's in the US. Yeah, and in the US, they've opened stores. I think they have what is it, fifty stores or sixty stores now in the US? Maybe? Uh, I think they're, they're over a hundred now. Over a hundred, right? So they're growing quite quickly there. The concept works in the US. Um, it's been remarkably successful, and they're now in the phase of just um, rolling them out into different geographies and. In we're probably not used to thinking about store rollouts on the scale of the US here in Australia. You know, in no. Australia, when a retailer gets to sort of 200 stores, that's pretty much maxed out. You might get one yeah. going to three or 400 stores at most. But in the US, you can have thousands, tens of thousands of stores. And the opportunity is just an order of magnitude different. And they are on the cusp of recognizing that opportunity. I think there's potential to have thousands of stores in the US and so far the opportunity is coming along quite nicely. What if we've got 150 odd stores in Australia with what 24 million people? Yeah. You've got to imagine you can get, you know, 12, 10 to 15 times that in the US. Yep. In California alone. Um, I think they could have, you know, 800 stores just in just in that Californian market. Wow. Wow. And they've been very successful for some reason um, in that Latino community, hmm. um, which is young and fast growing and seems to fit the, uh, you know, the social media obsessed wow. <laughs> um, uh, concept that they're trying to chase. So um, I, I think that's a really exciting opportunity. It, it is not without risk because, it, you know, maybe they hit geographies that don't work. Um, in the US, store rollouts have become more expensive. Staff has become harder to yeah. access than it was probably 18 months ago. So there is, um, it, it's, it won't be, it's not a slam dunk and it won't be easy. And that explains why we don't have a buy on the, on the business today. But at the right price, I think this remains one of the best retailers um, in the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also an interesting way to get international exposure as well. Yeah. Uh, without having to invest overseas, uh, that money comes back. Can we just talk briefly about the competition? Because when you talk about fast fashion, you think of thousands of people in China developing very cheap jewelry and mm. maybe mimicking what La Visa is doing. This seems kind of easy to get into. Um, what, what would you say about the competitive aspects of this marketplace? 
I suppose like all retail, it, it, it feels very easy and it looks very easy, but it is in fact quite hard um, mm-hmm. to compete against an already successful retailer. And I think the challenges of fast fashion are quite, um, quite specific for the same reason that Uniqlo, Zara, and um, I guess to a lesser extent H&M have been super successful over many, many years. These aren't just fads. These have been successful for an extended period of time. Those, um, those advantages translate over to the Visa as well. So we're talking about um, really quick inventory turn, which generates the data, which informs what kind of designs um, get, get built in the first place, um, which again increases sales, uh, generates data, and that kind of feedback loop is mm-hmm. remarkably powerful and hard to break into. So if you, if you just think about, uh, you know, trying to compete with, with Levisa or with Zara, you've got to actually build um, enough scale to generate the data, to get the insights, to know what the trends are, or you have to have some sort of ability or data to, um, to understand where trends are going uh, and what's being sought after and what's not. Yeah. All that is already just organic to Levisa. They get that every single day. It's all sy- systematic. They don't have to do anything to access it. Mm-hmm. I think that is uh, that is different to just a traditional um, retailer who um, you know who has a concept and someone else could have a better concept. I, I think it is different, and it's been proven in other fast fast fashion uh, retailers as well. I think it is an enduring advantage. It's quite interesting when you think about this, say, in terms of a tech company like Google, where just the volume of data you get gives you an advantage in the terms, in the kinds of services and the usefulness of services that can be delivered to the customer. Hmm. So if you're, if you're able to develop a new concept, a new product line and get it into the stores within 10 weeks, which is what their aim is, um, and then you're able to repeat that within yeah four, five, six weeks, mm. you're just doing stuff that your competitors probably can't and you're learning from that all the time about how that feeds into what your future products could be in different markets and and how the East Coast differs from the West Coast in the US and it just gives you it just gives you a kind of responsiveness that is very, very hard to replicate when you're not operating on that scale. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And the actual store setup, like all the economics are just magnificent. Something as as unremarkable as shrinkage, you know, um, having mm. stock um, disappearing from the shelves is a huge problem in retail. Um, in in some retailers, it's 20, 30% of sales it can be. Um, but here, it's just so inexpensive, especially when you consider the 80% gross margins, that it just doesn't make that much difference. The small um, store <laughs> sizes means that they get really quick um, payback on new store openings. Yeah. Um, the working capital um, isn't that you know the the, the inventory isn't that much uh, you know to to fill these stores out in the first place. There there every you know if you're going to build a store from scratch, I don't know if they did this. Every advantage that you would you would want in a retailer seems to be evident here in Lavisa from uh, from the very model uh, from the way it's set up. Um, it's, yeah. it's almost as though they're trying to they tried very hard to think of a way to maximize profits in every single way um, it, and, it and does seem they, that way yeah it, and it, that's why they make the margins they do no one comes close no no it's kind of crazy um yeah. so where could this go wrong then well there are a few things so I, I think the whole thing really depends on a very uh careful 
and engage management. And if you lose that um, engagement and that care, I think the whole thing can unravel. Mm. Um, it would only take, uh, you know, a couple of seasons. So there was, they did miss something. I remember a couple of years ago, they missed a, a key trend and that resulted in some bad sales for a little while and the share price took a big hit. And um, at that stage, I think I remember thinking, oh, okay, the fad's come and gone and, and this is now over. But they just missed a key trend and they jumped back on it and they learned from it and they've been much better since. But that is a risk. That is a consistent risk that you miss something or you uh, or the way you do things suddenly doesn't work anymore. Hmm. The other that might key, also be the source of the opportunity though if they miss a trend and they get yeah. They I, get I, smashed for, you know, the share price falls 25% and that might be the time when we do get a chance to buy it if they've proven that they can recover from those kind of misses. That was certainly the case the last time. I think the share price got down into $3 or something, something very, very cheap. Yeah. And even on traditional metrics, it just looked um, looked cheap. Yeah. Um, and the the narrative changed. By then it was a it was a fad that had run its course. Um, so if you, if you knew that business really well, you probably knew that wasn't the case. But that's one thing to look for. But I think the, the thing that probably worries me more is is just the cost of rolling out stores in the US. It, it could, um, you know, in this environment where um, where leases are rising, wages are rising, um, and supply chains are quite difficult, the visa shouldn't struggle as much as, as others because if worse comes to worse, these are very small um, items that can, you know, fit in small boxes. You can even chuck them on a plane and get them over. You don't need ports and, and shipping necessarily to move these items around. So they have a bit more flexibility than other retailers, but still that is a risk. I think um, the very uh, specific problems every retailer is facing at the moment also apply to La Visa. Okay. And this doesn't seem, I mean, I suppose it's the same thing with retailers where you make the money when you've proved the concept before the rollout happens. Um could you imagine owning this for 10 look both of you and I are shareholders in this business we should disclose but can you imagine holding this for 10 years uh, actually John I fully expect to I fully expect to own this through the US rollout my sell thesis for this would be um, would be if the the US rollout stalls it's abandoned or for some reason is not working I think then you have to look at it again and think well the upside here is is really gone um, even when the, sh- the stock got to $25, and I think we all knew then, look, it's probably run ahead of itself. It's probably a bit expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is one of those businesses you don't want to necessarily sell just because it's gotten a bit expensive. Um, yeah. It's just so much growth, potential growth ahead of it. I think this is this is one um, that I'm planning to hold for many, many years in any case. I think I've already held it for quite a few years. We all have, I think. We've yeah. held this for quite a few years, yeah. but I, I plan to hold it for, for many more. Yeah, I mean, the, the stock price fell to about, I'm just looking here, on March 23rd, which was the low. In 2020, it was $4.06. Yeah. Uh, it's now fourteen forty-seven, I think. Uh, last recommendation I think we had was a hold beginning of March at $20. So it's come back hmm. uh, 25%, um, a bit more than that. Uh, what, what price do you think we'd be looking to acquire put this back on the buy list oh, what's the buy price on it john i don't know <laughs> let me, let me, see. Let me just quickly 14 check. about 14 dollars, i think so we're not okay. i think it's not far off okay it wouldn't be far uh, off but there is a there's a high business risk attached to this and there's a share price risk can can you imagine this business going under doesn't sound like something that you wouldn't get some warning about 
Hmm. Well, when it got down to those very low levels during the COVID crash, the the risk we were concerned about was not so much bankruptcy and administration. It was it was that Blundy himself would privatize the business on the cheap and just internalize it. Yeah. Um, they yeah, do have yeah. a huge store network, so they do have lease liabilities. They have quite a decent chunk of net cash, and it's incredibly cash generative. And the good thing about it is not it's not cyclical in the way that um, a lot of retail is. You know, you don't necessarily need high incomes and good times. I think we might find that this um, benefits from the lipstick effect. It's a small cost um, that makes you feel good, and it's driven by social media. And I don't think any of those will be cyclical. So I don't expect a downturn to impact res, um, sales or results too much. But the costs, um, they're, that's that's probably the side to watch. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's LaVisa. I think we'll end it there. Um, what we suggest members do is go back to the previous reviews on this business. Um, there's two, Usually the first one is a good grounding in the business. Uh, and then when major things happen, we tend to update members on those reviews too. So mm. go back to the company page on the website and you can see all the reviews and the recommendations and the prices that they're made and you can click through to those reviews. So I think that's the best way to get prepared for this stock. It's not far away at the moment, so hopefully it'll be in uh, on the buy list in um, in the next few months. Yeah, we're closer than I thought, actually. We are, yeah, we're, we're not far off. We're surprisingly close to You might want to start sharpening your pencil. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, Gaurav, thanks very much. That was very interesting. Um, enjoy the rest of the day. Pleasure. Thanks, John. Thank you. 